Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 243rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is James Bogart. James is the CEO and president of Bogart Wealth, an RIA located in McLean, Virginia, that manages $1.8 billion of assets for 900 client households. What's unique about James, though, is that his firm has nearly doubled its asset center management organically since the start of the pandemic just 18 months ago by leveraging online educational webinars that address very specific niche issues around employee benefits for those who work at specific companies in the energy sector. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, although it took years to establish themselves as a go-to name for benefit planning needs for companies such as ExxonMobil and Shell, Doing so led to an acceleration in growth when the layoffs came at large energy companies during the pandemic. How James used the foundational knowledge from a CFP certification as a base from which he could build out his benefits planning expertise by learning how to source and interpret the requisite information directly from the companies online. And why the key to James's firm's success isn't just the result of their deep understanding of employee benefits in general, but rather how they apply their knowledge specifically to particular companies' benefits in a way that clearly differentiates their expertise for prospective clients who work at those companies. We also talk about how, by making their webinars readily available on the firm's website and via YouTube, James has created a marketing funnel that gives prospects the ability to refer their friends by sharing their videos a dynamic which James says is even more valuable than client-initiated referrals. How James has tracked his client acquisition costs from $350 down to just $20 per client after pivoting away from doing dinner seminars and going fully virtual. And how James leverages an advisory board that consists of the 12 to 15 clients that give him feedback about his business, and how he later makes sure to show them how he's implemented the suggestions so they feel empowered to give more constructive feedback in the future. And be starting to listen to the end, where James shares how, during his webinars, he offers a no-cost, no-obligation, full financial plan for prospects as a way to demonstrate the value his firm will deliver once they onboard his clients. Why James says that recently adding tax preparation along with financial planning and investment management has been the real secret sauce to his firm's ongoing success. And how James is managing the challenges that come along with such rapid growth, including finding adequate office space and experienced planners to hire who don't have existing books of business so that they have the capacity to absorb all the new business that James's firm is already bringing in. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with James Bogart. Welcome, James Bogart, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be uh, participating today. I'm, I'm really excited about today's episode and and getting to talk about what it's like to really grow an advisory firm fast. We talk about trying to grow our businesses and, and grow them more quickly, and, and some firms really try to invest more heavily into their marketing and growth and get it going. But I know you you have been on a truly, I think, kind of a growth journey, unlike very few others that I've I've seen. You are closing in on $2 billion of, of AUM, but it was $200 million five years ago, and it was only just barely over a billion at the beginning of last year before the pandemic, and, and then kind of went hockey stick vertical, I think, in, in, in growth through the pandemic for 
what I know are a number of marketing shifts that you made that we'll that we'll get into. But just in a in a world where a lot of advisory firms at the end of the day talk about, you know, fast growth is like, ooh, I added several clients this month, but I'm kind of drained because of all the financial plans I've been doing for all these clients at the same time. And you're living in a world where you're adding many, many clients a week, sometimes multiple clients a day, pretty much every day on an ongoing basis. You are just living a whole other level of growth and what it's like to try to quickly grow and accelerate an advisory firm. Yeah, I mean that's a, a pretty good summary of, of what the last, you know, call it twelve to fifteen months have looked like for us. You know, and, and, and I think it's it's a byproduct of having a really, really good team and and very aggressively making some shifts just in the environment that we were in and being educators. Being educators is absolutely what caused a lot of this to start and and then of course adjusting some of the strategy based upon the pandemic. You know, but you know, we, we look at 2021 started just over a billion and here we are, you know, breaking close to 1.9 billion six months later. It's been a lot of work. So, so talk to us about, I guess this first of all, like where is like a billion dollars of growth coming from so incredibly quickly? Truthfully, it's, it's a lot of these layoffs, you know, it's a tough environment. And, and to me, I, I view what we do is just an essential need. A lot of the clients that we're working with, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're caught with with redundancy programs or or just infrastructure changes that eliminated their jobs. And next thing you know, you know, some of them hadn't even looked at at what the life would look like after the company they were at, and they needed help very, very quickly. You know, last July, I'll never forget it. It was you know July six announcements gets made at a company, and and all of a sudden we get a hundred phone calls in a day. You know, sixty phone calls the next day, and I'm on vacation in the meantime. So it it, it quickly turned into a, a very clear message of of how valuable an advisor is and how valuable, you know, being knowledgeable in their, their benefit programs was, you know, I, I got to say, you know, a lot of what we do is, is building a pipeline. You know, I, we, we treat the business as a business. And one of the KPIs that I watch really closely is, you know, who, you know, what's coming just as much as what we have. And, and I actually look at that as one of the, the health and success matrices that we use in terms of the future of the company. But the, everything changed last year, you know, where we, we had, you know, 150 to 200 million in the pipeline quickly became 1.3 billion. And, and a lot of it was induced because of, of the environment. But, you know, it became, you know, where we were doing a lot of the educational events live pre-COVID pandemic, and we shifted to do them all virtually and recording them, which I think was a big step too for me. But now all of a sudden, the geographic footprints changed. And where we used to be doing events just in certain geographies, now all of a sudden, we're talking to clients all over the globe. So, I mean, that's a lot of it. <laughs> so, so I want to understand more in, in, in a couple of areas here. So first... You had noted just, you know, like, where, where does all the growth come from at the end of the day? We had a giant pandemic. People are getting laid off when they're getting laid off. You know, they're losing their jobs. Retirement plans are in motion. Money's in motion. And, and when, money's, when money's in motion, there's often business opportunities. With the, with the caveat, and I think the distinction for what you're doing versus other companies, other advisory firms, like, yes, a lot of people are getting laid off, have been getting laid off through the past year. But... For the average advisor, when layoffs occur in their area, they don't get a hundred phone calls that day. (laughs) 
and you do apparently. So like where, what's making the phone ring? Like, why is it that layoffs are like massive influxes of inbound business for you? And for the rest of us, it's not at that level. Like maybe, maybe there's a client we know who, you know, suddenly has a 401k in play, but not a, not a hundred phone calls that start ringing off the hook. You know, it, it comes back to that pipeline, the billion dollars of growth really Yes, it all occurred in a very short period of time, but there was legitimately 10 to 15 years of, of base building, if you will. Call it brand enhancement, call it continuing to expand your service offering, but we've been doing what we've been doing for a very long time. And what we did really well was develop essentially subject matter expertise. And so then all of a sudden, when a, a specific change happens, we become the go-to name and or, or one of very few go-to names. And that's what caused all of a sudden in this vortex to have a, a lot of a lot of activity in, in a very short period of time. So so help me understand a little bit more of just what is what does this mean in practice when you say just we, we've done education, we have subject matter expertise, we've been building a pipeline for years and years of the firm. Like what are you what are you doing that just that is ultimately making a, a bajillion client show up. So at the highest level, it's educating. You know, my why is to educate, period, the end. Um, and, and whether it's doing you know, the, the rubber chicken dinner seminars or podcasts, white papers, blog posts, it's, I, I do believe in educating the investor. Now, specifically what caused this growth is taking that education and being very specific with it. So we work a lot with the energy companies. ExxonMobil is the biggest one. But what we've done is become experts on their benefit plans. I, I would argue we know their benefit programs as well as their own HR companies, their, their own HR uh, employees. The real need for, for someone like us is we can take the knowledge we have and then apply it to a client situation. You know, what is the best thing to do to optimize uh, the, the programs that they have available to them. We did that extremely well within the ExxonMobil world, and we've turned and we've applied it to at least a dozen other companies at this point and, and continuing to grow. What's interesting is I went into 2020 really working on taking our educational content and programs and applying it to other businesses. And then the pandemic hit. And, and as we all know, life kind of stopped temporarily, uh, if you will. But you know, then I look at March of 2020, it was all hands on deck servicing clients. And then very quickly, all of a sudden, we saw the writing on the wall that things are changing and things will be changing. And so we, we pivoted our content to take it all virtual, record it. And next thing you know, you know, I, I used to get anywhere from, let's just say 40 to 80 people at a live event. Uh, you know, this is a restaurant where I'm serving dinner and I'm talking about something specific to their benefits, whether it's net unrealized depreciation, which is a tax strategy or retirement income planning or you know some of the more generic ones like social security you know and in each of those those high level topics I, I always try to make it very specific to them and and their programs and then how to apply it but then when we moved to virtual you know I'll never forget first event I did 371 attendees and I gotta say I was pretty nervous when I did that talk because you know never had I talked to that many people all at once but you had a very captive audience and people wanted to listen they wanted to learn and, and what else are they going to do but sit at home and listen to this stuff so Help me understand more, like just how does the, just like, how does the expertise come about? I mean, just you, you said like we became real experts in their benefit plans for, for places like ExxonMobil. I mean, one of the questions I often get from advisors that are looking to become more specialized, it's like, you know, 
what course do you sign up for to do that? Like, where, what's the designation? Where do you, you know, where do you go to learn the the stuff? So, like, what did you do? I mean, wh- where do you go to actually get the the depth of expertise to go so so deep into particular companies like ExxonMobil? You know, that's a really good question. So, first and foremost, you start because I would say being a CFP is extremely important, certified financial planner. But then, related to the depth of the specific companies, you know, you you can get most of these companies' 401k programs, all of the supporting documents online. If they have a defined benefit program, you can get those as well. Now, what someone will quickly learn is every defined benefit plan has different nuances and calculations are different. And then there's, of course, legacy programs associated with them. And, and so when it comes to the depth itself, some of it is, is literally just analyzing what's in front of them now, but then also experiencing the modifications that happen along the way. Like I think of, again, ExxonMobil is a huge corporation. They've done several acquisitions. And because of that, there's deviations that employees will have based upon legacy pension plans they had and things of that sort. And and so it's being able to not only understand the content that you're looking at, but then turn around and, and find the mechanisms that will allow you to apply that to enhance client value. You know, for example, interest rates have a direct impact on the lump sum calculation that someone would be able to have if they decide they want to take a lump sum. Um, I'd say in this environment, because interest rates are so low, a lot of clients believe the lump sum is the best option, but it's our job as educators to talk about the pros and cons of pension versus lump sum, to go through the pros and cons, financial ramifications, tax implications, income ramifications. And and so, you know, going back to kind of how do you get that knowledge, some of it's living it, but some of it's also, you know, being able to to understand and apply what you're what you're learning. So just the the whole phenomenon, like the more the more ExxonMobil clients you have the better you get at planning for ExxonMobil clients. It's, I mean, I would say that's absolutely the case. So what we've done to replicate Exxon is, you know, so every one of our clients, you know, husband, wife, some work, some don't work. You then start to see kind of the correlations of where other people work. <laughs> and so the next thing you know, that we did is we talked about growing was, all right, who works? You know, where, where do we have concentrations at, at other companies? So then it was Northrop Grumman. Then it was Lockheed Martin. It was Verizon. It was Oracle, ConocoPhillips, Chevron. And, and then how can we build con- content to support going after other businesses as well. And, and, and same, same concepts applied. You go, you study what the plans are that are available to them. Now, admittedly, you know, along the way, you will stumble upon some, some pitfalls because like I look at Shell's benefit programs. Shell's another big corporation that has done several acquisitions and there's lots of deviations off of you know, some of the pension calculations or even some of the 401k calculations. And that's, and that's just part of the process. So, and, and I think you make an interesting point that just we we do live in the modern internet era, like particularly for large companies, like most of this stuff is actually online. You may have to dig a little on their website or get savvy in, in figuring out the right keywords in the Google search to shortcut your way to them. But like this, the I just I'm I'm comparing this to even when I started 20 years ago and if you wanted to like get in with a company, you, the first step was figure out how to make a friend with someone in the HR department so that you could contact them and get them to like send you material or answer your questions just to get the basic gist of what was going on because like documents just weren't out there publicly accessible in a lot of cases. And and now like they are just 
the internet's a wonderful thing. A lot of information is often out there if you just start go hunting for it to say, I really want to learn about this particular company. Unquestionably. And and even honestly, the small and mid companies. So with an Exxon, like Exxon Mobile has a program where they hire an outside consultant to educate their employees. And they've got you know different stages of their career where they can talk about very generally what their programs are. And, and then you look at, at small and mid-sized companies. They don't have those resources. But at the end of the day, the employees want to know how to enhance their value, the, the value off of those programs, what's available to them. And, and ultimately, how does that translate over into how, how can they retire off of these programs? And it's the enhancements, the optimizations, and it's looking at the sequencing and timing and what would be the most important timing of executing the different programs. You you noted like this starts with CFP certification, and and I feel like at the end of the day, a lot of what you're talking about, like they have 401k plans, they have defined benefit pension plans, pension plans have lump sum calculations that are impacted by the discount rate that you use. Companies have NUA. Like I'm sure there's a lot of advice to their listing. It's like, yeah, I learned this stuff in CFP class too. Like, why are you getting a billion dollars of <laughs> growth? Like, what's What's different about what you're doing it and the fact that we all learn about these things as well and have at least a lot of shared knowledge? Yes, I'm sure you know like more nuances about the particular twists and turns of all the ways that Exxon has acquired various companies over time. But I'm like, you know, I feel like I, I know at least a lot of this stuff. I know the core rules and, and kind of how these mechanics work. I can, I can read a plan document as well. Why is your business growing bonkers compared to everybody else's who also has at least a lot of this similar knowledge valid question and truthfully it comes down to application like for example i'll use nua you know we have a tool that we've built that talks about not only how to calculate it but it talks about what the value to the employee would be for having it and then specifically helps them with what is the most optimal way of of executing it that's just one example same we actually have the same thing for for pretty much any pension program we run into and these are tools that we've built along the way with with you know kind of the planning process itself but what and, makes and just when you say tool i mean just we're talking like excel spreadsheet that does the number crunching that serves up some output that you can use to have a good conversation with the meeting and the clients like is that the sort of tool we're talking about yeah so i've been blessed with some really, really great employees, like really great employees, P- people that make me look a lot smarter than I really am. And, and you know, a couple of them have different backgrounds. One's an engineer, you know, a couple are accountants. And, and the thing is, is they can take the data and then turn away, turn around and find a way to analyze the data. And then we turn around and find a way to demonstrate the value of the data. But yes, it, it's a, back to your original question. It, it's their macro documents that were built out of Excel that turn around and, and spit out PDFs of this is what you should really be considering. And, and part of it too is, is we're not just coming back to a client saying this is the only option you have. We're modeling different scenarios for them and, and we're talking about the pros and cons of, of if you were to consider declaring, and I'll go back to NUA, but if you consider declaring NUA on your $15 shares and below versus your $53 shares and below, and then ultimately what you should be doing with any type of employer stock that are beyond those price points. The other thing that we've talked about a lot recently is, is tax paid credit balances, after tax balances. And should you use it to apply it against NUA cost basis or should you have it go to a Roth IRA? And then for those that are actively employed, you know, if you have too much 
tax paid credit balance, you really might want to consider mega backdoor Roth strategies. You know, these are all ways of enhancing the client experiencing, enhancing the client experience, but also at the same time to really also positioning yourself as highly knowledgeable within their programs. And, and candidly, the one that probably carries the most weight is going in and analyzing the pensions. You know, I look at a lot of these companies that have these defined benefit plans and it's like, these are real numbers. You got admins who, who on average have a million dollar pension benefit. Um, some of them are less, of course, but on average, it's about a million bucks. And then you, of course, go up to the executives and it's a lot more than that. And so when you talk about the impact of interest rates on lump sum calculations, like the number one conversation we were having in the fourth quarter was you need to delay taking your, your lump sum. If you're going to take the lump sum, you want to wait till first quarter. And here's why. And and of course, as advisors, that means you're not getting paid. I mean, I get it. It's it's doing what's in the best interest of the client, but it's absolutely in the best interest of the client. It's a significant amount of money. And the and the reason for the for the delay in that case was what like rates were declining Q4. You could tell that the calculation was going to reset its number in a month or two at a more favorable number. So you really should wait on this thing because we can tell that the calculation is going to reset more favorably since interest rates have been moving. Precisely. Yeah. So in another tool that we've built is is tracking discount rates. Um, and then of course, how it applies to different companies, benefit programs. But you know, again, we saw a very clear trajectory between fourth quarter and first quarter was a significant decline in those discount rates. And so from an optimization perspective, even if somebody was over the age of 60, and, and again, every pension program is a little different, but with like Exxon's, Exxon discounts if they're under the age of 60, but if they're over 60, it still made sense because on average, a, a, a 1% movement in discount rates equates to a 10% increase to their lump sums. And so when we saw, for example, between uh, fourth and first quarter, it was a 47 basis point decline. It's 4.7% just for waiting a month in a lot of cases. So I get it from that end of just how you're doing the the in-depth analysis itself. And, and you know, it strikes me that Oh, yeah, just any any time you're in a practice where you get focused in a particular thing, it it it, it starts to pay to reinvest into actually like building tools and solutions. Right, you're probably not going to build a bunch of highly refined calculating and presentation spreadsheets for a client who has NUA or for two or three clients who have NUA. But when you're doing that as a full time focus, and you have a hundred clients who have NUA and pension lump sums, all of a sudden it's like. Hey, we should probably put a little extra time into making this like a really nice client-facing spreadsheet with all the additional bells and whistles that we want to attach to it. Because just it's 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 literally in your interest now because the 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 value and the expertise of building that tool become repeatable expertise that you can use not just for the next this client or the next one or two, but like the next 10, 20, 50, 100 clients. So so I hear you on that end. Like the more you focus in this area, the more you started making tools and solutions and analytical material that both make the process faster for analyzing the client's plan and just sort of do a deeper job and show better for the client because you really made a thing that's specific for it. But to me, like that explains the value you're creating for the ExxonMobil client, the Shell client, the Chevron client, et cetera. But how did they know to call you and show up in your office in the first place? Like where is the Where's the new business activity coming from that you get to whip out your really cool ExxonMobil specific lump sum pension calculation uh, spreadsheet? So honestly, it's referrals. And I go back to that that pipeline base building. And, and because we're known as the subject matter expert for them, 
it's it's very interesting. I I I do think that probably the strongest and, and one of the best things that Bogart Wealth has is our organic growth initiatives, because we've created a platform where we're just giving away the educational content. I mean, anybody who's listening to this can go to my website and see some of the content we have, but we give it away. I'm not charging for any of it, but it's been incredible in that it gives our prospects the ability to refer their friends, and that's even more valuable than just having your clients. Built, refer their friends. Because what we've done is is now, of course, over the years, accumulated a massive database of names. We've probably got 20,000 names in our database of people who are, who are subscribed to the different content that we're producing, whether it's it's the, the blog posts, the emails, the white papers, the videos. And it's all because you know we're constantly getting new referrals from our existing clients, but also our existing our, our existing prospects. Because you think about it, our prospect database is, is probably 20x our client base. But it comes back to because we know this stuff and where we're, we are fiduciaries, you know, we're putting their interests above our own. And at the end of the day, it, it's made it a very, very powerful organic growth platform. Because, because even that person who is considering retirement, who maybe isn't there yet, but is, you know, checked out your video on ExxonMobil lump sums, when their friend is thinking about retiring and is all saying like, hey, are you retiring? What are you doing with the, you know, are you going to take the lump sum off your pension? Then that person who is even working with you yet still says like, Oh well, I've been checking out these videos on Bogart Wealth. Like it's all about ExxonMobil lump sums. Like you should go check it out as well. It's really helpful stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And they're not even a client, but they've been they're not even a educational yep. material. Yep. And and, and it's interesting because I actually have prospects who have given us more referral. I have prospects that will do it themselves, and and you can you kind of know quickly when when you're talking to somebody if they're going to be employing an advisor or not. But we're still engaging with them and, and helping with them with understanding their benefits because at the end of the day, they're sending their friends over. You know, I have one gentleman, I knew he was never going to be a client ever. He And he came to every one of the live events I did and he did pretty much every uh, podcast or blog, we, uh, excuse me, video we've ever done. And he's given us over 35 referrals that have all become clients. And... <laughs> So some of it's a little bit of that pay it forward mentality. You have to invest in the, in the value of the relationship to be able to get you know, future returns off the relationship. I, I love that point though. Like we did a, you know, we have a DIY investor who keeps coming to all of our events and is never going to work with us because they're a DIY investor, dot, dot, dot. But they referred 35 friends. You know, and, and it's funny because we do, obviously we track a lot of this stuff, but we, you know, one of them is, is what does it cost us to onboard a relationship? How many events have they attended? And, and, and you know, what's the cost of acquisition of the client? And this gentleman by far is my highest. But then when I look at the return off that investment, it's like, all right, I'll pay that all day long. And out of curiosity, the, just because I love tracking these numbers as well, like what, like what is your client acquisition costs? Like how are you? How are you tracking it and what is that boiling down to for you? Obviously it's changed since pandemic. You know, pre-pandemic, I was doing all this stuff live. And and so, you know, you're you're doing the dinners at an expensive restaurant, which is usually a hundred bucks a plate. So and and it and normally 
I don't have people that come to just one event before they onboard and become a customer. You know, we're very process oriented with client acquisition. So I knew the math on these events. Every event that I would do, 35% were brand new names that would had never been to one of my events. Typically, they come to 2.7 events before they come in for a meeting. And then at that point, once they come in for a meeting, uh, and by the way, 65% of new attendees come in, came in for a meeting. And, but those, those that came in for a meeting, 87% became clients. So it, it was very process driven. And so the typical cost of acquisition on the client because of, of the meals was somewhere in the realm of 350 bucks. Now, since COVID and, and we've pivoted everything over into the virtual database or a virtual world, I'm not paying for dinners anymore. And, and of course, the amount of attendees has skyrocketed. So the cost of acquisition on a client has, has dropped down into you know, the, the $20 range. It's not even, it's more my time than, than actual cost for marketing dollars. Because there's just almost no expense to the event itself, and and just what about the marketing for the events? Like get you know, well, in, in the in person world, the the so called getting butts and seats, virtual world, in the I guess virtual registration seats. I mean, I know for a lot of firms, even even in traditional educational world, sixty eighty percent of their cost wasn't the wasn't the dinner plate; it was the mailer. To get the people into the into the room to do it. So where are the people coming from? I'm glad you said that. So I don't do any mailers. You know, it's the, one of the things that we've moved to very aggressively, oh gosh, 15 years ago was email marketing. And, you know, it used to be, we'll send out the, the paper invitation and see who comes, you know, they RSVP, whatnot. But when we moved to email and provided a platform for someone to very quickly forward our link over to somebody else. So every one of our emails that we send out for for introducing one of these topics or the events, of course, it's got the links in it to the blog, the uh, the other videos, the blog, the uh, podcast, the blog posts, specific pages on our website that are talking in more depth about the different topics that people want. And, and that's another thing we track is, is website activity and, and obviously looking at where people are going on our website. You know, we made the biggest investment in enhancements on the website, which was building the, the platform out for the, the content stuff. But I don't pay for anything with regards to mailing out of paper invitations. I have a, a constant contact relationship, which is, you know, it's a couple hundred bucks a year, but we're not buying names either. Now I've, I've heard a lot of advisors buy email lists and then they just blast out different email lists. Uh, we haven't needed to do that because of the amount of, of leads that are coming in off of what we're already doing. And, and now this stuff is all searchable that, you know, we're getting anywhere from 25 to 70 leads a day coming in off of all the content. Meaning in essence that because you've got all this content, educational content, blog content you put on your website that 25 to 70 people sign up for the mailing list every day and and move into your marketing funnel that you're going to then get to communicate with and target on an ongoing basis. And so and so that all drives from just putting out and publishing lots of content on your website. I'm presuming this is like you 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 run a blog, you put out nothing at your caliber by the way. Um but it's more specific to what people want to see. And, and so one of the things we do very well is surveying, you know, what are the topics you want to hear? What are the topics you want to see? And of course, producing the content associated with that. Uh, well, I love the point of that, that I, so often I, the blocking point I hear for a lot of advisors around like producing content on their website is like, well, I just, I don't, I don't know what to write about. I don't know what to cover. I don't, I don't know what we should be doing content on. And like, to me, sort of set right there, like you just survey your 
clients and your mailing list and ask them. Ask them. And in, in every event you do, have a survey. Be, you know, I mean, I used to, again, old school, right? But I used to have a paper survey that every attendee, I'd ask them to fill and I'd reiterate it a couple times during the event. Now with the, the virtual ones, we have a digital survey at the end that all of that populates right into our, our CRM. And one of the questions is like, what other, what other questions do you have or what other content do you want to see information on? Exactly. And, and, and the other thing I would say, not directly related to this, but it's, you got to have an advisory board. Absolute must, must have, because your biggest advocates are your top clients. But within that advisory board, interestingly enough, I always, always, always made it an initiative to have prospects and, and including prospects that I know I had no chance of winning because I wanted the direct and candid feedback. So how did you bring the advisory board together? That was probably, gosh, 10 years ago, maybe longer. But originally, you know, again, young, fledgling, young guy, you know, I I wanted ways to ask people questions, ways to enhance the business, ways to enhance the client experience. And candidly, at the end of the day, it was all about how do I grow the business? How do I get more clients? How do I get more of you? And then, you know, next thing you know, you ask a group of, of, I think the original one, I had 12 people that attended from an advisory board and, and I've held true to 12 to 15 people at every one of these, but it was really, I wanted that platform to be able to ask questions about my business and, and get f- candid feedback. And, and by the way, a lot of times you'll get stuff you don't want to hear, but they'll also give you some really great stuff too. <laughs> and then I think the key to the success with the advisory boards is, is showing them what you're implementing from their feedback. And obviously, when you bring back the advisory board, you want some consistency associated with those people. But when they come back, you, you start the meeting of, since our last advisory board, this were the, these were the recommendations, this is what we've implemented. And this is the value why I'm asking this group to come together. And, and how often are you meeting with the advisory board? So I try to do them every six months. Now, I will admit, because of COVID, I have not done one in... in now 15 months, but pre-pandemic. Um, the last one I did was November of 2019. Going to bring it going to bring it back. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because the advisory board, people who sit on the advisory board are asking when the next one's going to be. And so how do you, how do you run them itself? Like, it sounds like it, it's sort of like um, a meeting that they come together for and, and that's the, and that's the deal. It is. Yeah. And, and I don't ask for anything other than the three hours of that meeting itself. Now, running them, I use a conference room in my office building. It's a they've got a little conference suite. So it costs me absolutely nothing for the conference space. I bring in a professional moderator. I've used the same gentleman for the last decade. He's absolutely incredible, but I let him run the meeting. Obviously, he and I talk about what I want the agenda to be ahead of the meeting and we prepare a slide deck for it. But the key to success I've found with the advisory boards is just sit there and be a sponge and take as many notes as you possibly can and listening to the side conversations that the advisory board members are having because ultimately it's it, it, you know it's little nuggets you get from those 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 meetings and then turning around and implementing it and and, and I would also say you know again you got to have a thick skin be prepared for them to tell you about things that you're not doing well and things that you need to improve upon or enhance now. After I do the three-hour meeting, I always take them to dinner, restaurant afterwards, and then, of course, candid feedback at the end. And, and afterwards, I always, that night, I sent out an email of, you know, this is the, the key takeaways I had from the meeting. Thank you so much for your time. Look forward to, to visiting with you in the future. And, and do you otherwise, like, pay them, compensate them, or just, just invite them and they want to do it to be a part of it because they're already clients and 
they just kind of have a self-interest to see it get better because it's serving them anyways. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's it is the latter. I don't pay them. You know, we we'll give them you know branded tchotchkes, uh, you know, wine glasses or a, a, a folio or, or you know, pens, notepads, stuff like that. But it's nothing that, that's creating substantial cost. The cost of the event is is the moderator and then the dinner. But I, I'd say at the end of the day, you're you're well under three thousand dollars of total cost on this event, and the value from it is just so directly impactful. It's it's great it's great stuff and and again a lot of them are doing it because they want to see us get better and I think part of it too is a little bit is that you know they want to be able to know kind of some of the inner workings of the company because you know I, I will you know when I introduce the company I always ask them you know please keep what we talk about and you know at this meeting you know it's, the moderator always frames it as uh, the Vegas rules what happens in this meeting stays in this meeting I talk about the inner workings. I talk about financial condition. I talk about asset growth. I talk about some of my big pain points, my struggles. Um, how can you help? So, so James, so I'm, I'm still just trying to step back and, and, and just sort of think once more at the high level of the, the sheer volume of growth that's coming. So just, I guess, just walk me through once more at a high level, how this is working, or, or I guess, confirm my understanding that just at the end of the day, like, you're doing a bunch of content on your website, educational content about retirement stuff, NUA, pension lump sums, et cetera. People find their way to that content, I guess, primarily through Google searches. If they think it's interesting, they sign up for your mailing list. Your mailing list invites them to come to a webinar since we're in virtual world now. You do one or several webinars for them. And then eventually they say, hey, I'm, I'm interested in talking to you about becoming a client. And just if you do that with enough volume, a whole bunch of clients start showing up. Yeah, exactly. And and I would say the key to the success from what I've found is consistency. You have to make the investment in doing it several times. You know, again, what we've experienced recently is the manifestation of call it 15 years worth of doing these where we've consistently been building these databases and this pipeline and, and making that investment. Now, along the way, we're getting return on our investment, but of course, we we just had the call it the big payday, if you will, with the due to the consistency of what we had. And so, again, like I feel like there are a lot of advisors that write some blog content, try to do some webinars, just their their numbers are not even on the same plane of, of what you guys are doing. What's different about how you're doing it? And I'm, I'm sure you've seen what other advisors out there do in the marketplace that are not getting the same kind of results. So what's, what's different for your approach? Being specific and being relevant. That is the most important part it's it's things well so we're we're very rifle shot at what we're producing it's obviously i have some generic stuff too just like everybody else does but the stuff that has the most impact that leads to business is very very detailed and very specific to what the customer wants to hear like for example cover call writing it, it Again, it's an example, but cover call writing. We've got a five-page white paper that we wrote that it's on my website. Everybody can see it, but it's a very specific piece that gives examples of how to apply this stuff. Now, at the end of the day, and, and you know, we all talk about it, you can educate somebody as much as possible, but it really comes down to how you, you execute it and, and how to optimize and then being able to make those, those very specific and detailed recommendations associated with it. So can you give me some other examples of just like what what kinds of things drive just drive this sort of activity or even drive the prospect lead flow 
Sure. Yeah. So the, the the probably the number one that I get right now that that that's been driving lead flow for us is how do discount rates impact your lump sum? We do webinars on it. I do a weekly piece that I send out where we're showing the projections that we're doing on those discount rates, um, and and again translating it to direct impact for them. That's probably unquestionably been the call it the fastball, if you will. But then getting into some of the more specific topics like uh, mega backdoor Roth conversions, that's a very timely one right now, especially with uh, several companies discontinuing or reducing 401k matches. Provides a lot more latitude to be able to put some after-tax contributions in. You know, that's that's a very specific strategy that, again, typically you're, you're giving them enough data to be able to get them to understand it, but not necessarily understand to a point where they're ready to execute. And that's when they come and engage. And I'm not intentionally not providing enough data. It's just simply, they they will still ask that question. Just having the opportunity to have a conversation is ultimately what opens up the door to give us the platform to be able to convert it over into becoming a customer. So I hear it now on the the content and the content drives signups to the email list. So now talk to us a little bit more of just this sort of jump from I think it's like 20,000 people on the email list that you've built up over over years and years to people who actually say like I am now ready to hire your firm and give you my life savings. It sounds like the 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 bridging of the gap between the two is webinars, but like how does this work? I mean, what what do you do? What is the what is the webinar offer? How are you delivering them? What's the actual flow from I'm reading your emails and eventually I've seen some webinars and become a client. Come in for a complimentary plan. I don't charge for planning. Uh, you know, I go back and forth if I should ever charge for it or not. But I, I look at, at the planning initiatives as a an investment that my firm is willing to make into the longevity of a relationship. So call to action off of every one of our webinars is to come in for a plan. If you haven't run your numbers, take advantage of the opportunity. It doesn't cost you anything and there's absolutely no obligation. That no cost, no obligation kind of tagline, if you will, is, is I think ultimately what makes feel, people feel comfortable and goes back to why, the, why our prospects are willing to tell their friends. But uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow when you look at what you could charge for plans relative to the amount of volume we do. It's, it's also one where I have a very high level of confidence in the product of what we produce, and we have a very high conversion ratio to be able to support that. And, and I probably know, you know, when we do these plans, it is not just a, a, an e-money or, or Money Guy Pro cookie cutter type of, of product. You know, we are actually going in, giving very specific, very detailed analysis. We're modeling different scenarios for the customer, whether it's a you know, 2021 retirement, 22, 23, 24, pay cash for a house, uh, you know, use a mortgage, it's lump sum versus annuity. You know, we're running different scenarios and then Monte Carlo's off of it. We give them the detailed pension analysis. We give them the NUA analysis. So again, it's, it's all of these tools that we've built that ultimately really create this this detailed customized product that then when the customer sees it, it's like wow these guys really do know our benefit programs and specifically how to implement and then i'd even add you know w- one of the service offerings that that we've enhanced is is bringing tax and integrating tax in over the last couple of years and that that ultimate integration of planning investment and tax has been the secret sauce, if you will, um, you know, if you're just giving it away, but being able to make and, and translate over to a customer with their situation, what decisions they're making today and what impact that's going to have on them in the future is, is ultimately 
to me, the recipe for success. You know, it's, it's pl- having just investments and just planning, you know, that was great. We were growing, but truthfully, when I look at what we've done on the tax side, you know, Roth conversion analysis, and then some of the, the mega backdoor strategies and backdoor strategies, that's all the stuff that's really just kind of hit the home run for us. And what, what planning software or tools are you using for just doing all the work that you're doing? So I know. Yeah. So, so we use eMoney. We've honestly, we've used pretty much all of them at this point. eMoney to me has been the one that allows us to get as detailed as we desire to be and, and really specifically getting back to some of the tax implications of what we're doing. There's some great planning software out there. We've just found that eMoney integrates the best with our technology stack and then also allows us to get into the, the specific data that our customers are looking for. So the the depth of tax modeling and e-money is, I guess, is a particular driver for you then? It is. You know, like, and, and I won't say the firm we were using before just because I don't want to speak ill, but like, for example, we were using another planning software that first off was using bad tax rates. You know, for example, we all know the 2018 tax reform at sunsets in 2025. They were just assuming the current tax rates were staying the same way. That's just inaccurate in the base case. Or they had restricted stock grants that weren't posting as taxable income. Okay, well, that's also inaccurate as well. Or when a supplemental pension was paying out, wasn't showing as taxable. And, and you know, my team would spend hours with their with their platform trying to get these things fixed. And finally, I just said, no, we need to make change. And the planning output for you in practice, though, it sounds like is a combination of e-money output, your own Excel spreadsheets, I'm presuming your own like Word document write-up of this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have... Um, so we call our planning uh, sequencing TFP1, 2, and 3. TFP1 is, is when we collect the data from a client, which is typically the first meeting after they've attended one of our events. TFP, we also will introduce the firm in that meeting in more depth than what we've done at the webinars or live events. Then TFP2 is where we're actually presenting what, what our outputs are. It's a Word document that gets converted over into a PDF, and then we're integrating over the e-money documents into that document. We'll also throw in... Uh, some of those uh, Excel macro tools that we use, like the the NUA analysis, the Roth conversion analysis. And then we also will talk about our, our investment suite and what we do on the investment side. And then what's TFP3? Typically, it's a, it's a revised iteration of whatever we've we had or a follow-up meeting off of the TFP2. So a lot of times, like for example, someone will come in and say, all right, what does it look like if I decided to retire a year later or a year earlier and, and asking for a di- you know, different iterations. So th- that's typically the meeting where we'll do that. If I haven't been able to win on the TFP2, I go for the win on, on the TFP3 or call for, or, you know, action for, ask for the business. And, and out of curiosity, uh, just TFP stands for? Total financial plan. All right. <laughs> hey, it's all good. We got we to get something in there. Okay. And so on the tax end of things, are you... Are you solely doing the tax planning or are you actually like going so far as tax preparation in-house? The, the latter. Yeah. So it's it's originally, you know, it's, I go back to the advisory board. I've asked this question for probably a gazillion years, it feels like, you know, do clients care about tax preparation? And the answer I used to get from the advisory board was we want the tax advice, but we don't care about putting the numbers into the system. You know, interestingly enough, I had a competitor of mine that was doing tax prep as well. And next thing you know, you know, we had already had the relationship in place to be able to do tax returns, but we were just solely using them for tax modeling. And next thing you know, as as I found, I, I love competition. I think healthy competition is a really good thing. But when I'm seeing him win in scenarios where I feel like I should have won, 
it, it naturally just makes me say, all right, what am I got to, what do I need to fix to, to, to not have that be a differentiator for him? Sure enough, boom, inter, you know, I integrated tax prep and next thing you know, you know, you see the growth that we've had. And, and how do you structure it in practice? Do you, do you charge clients separately for the tax planning uh, or sorry, the tax preparation? Do you bundle it into the AUM fee? Like, how does this work? Yeah. So, so I bundled it. So what we do is we pay for client tax preparation for if they have 2 million in managed assets and above, we've got clients that sometimes don't have everything managed by us, but uh, if it's two managed, 2 million of managed AUM, we prepare the returns. If they're underneath that, they could still use the CPAs. They just pay for the cost of the return. Okay. And, and just at basically the, whatever the raw cost is like a few hundred dollars kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's anywhere from four to 600 bucks. Talk to us a little bit more about just the webinar itself, it sounds like this is still kind of the key linchpin transition point from lots of people who are getting the emails and and, and reading the content to the people who actually take the meeting and, and start going through the through the planning process. Like just what are the webinar? Like how do they work? How do you produce them? How long are they? Tell us more about the webinars themselves. So we now have eleven different ones that we do and different topics, of course, and so the durations will change on them. But again, it comes back to what have people asked us to talk about? The first one I ever did was called, we call it the retirement timeline, where we actually will break down some of the decisions. First off, we educate on what the options they have, and then we break down some of the decisions that they're going to need to be making and then how to execute. And then what I found was that webinar, as I kept adding things, it kept getting longer and longer and longer. And, and even after I've, I've now call it quote unquote shortened it. It's still a 70 minute webinar. And that's if I'm rushing through it, I feel like. But what we did then was we got into really detailed specifics of each of the, the specific topics that people really wanted to talk about. So like we do one on Roth, Roth versus traditional IRAs and 401ks, how to save, where to save. Discount rates, typically it, it's a sole one on its own. Discount rates, one of the shorter ones, but it's, you know, it's called 30 minutes. Retirement income planning. That's another one that we've gotten into detail on. It's uh about 45 minutes-ish, uh, long-term care, long-term care insurance. That's a more generic one, I will admit, but it's been nice because that's actually opened up the door to other opportunities as well. But that one's about 45 minutes. We do one on social security. That one goes about an hour. And, and then, of course, recently, we've had a lot of people asking more specific questions. So like one on after-tax rollovers and uh, mega backdoor and how to execute that strategy. That one goes, you know, call it you know, 45 minutes to an hour. and then. As events happen, um, we're very good about producing content as those events happen. So it might be, for example, uh, the CARES Act. When the CARES Act came out, we, we did an event, you know, Roth conversions. And so like I look at any market environment and what are the opportunities or, or strategy things that we should be doing within those environments? Like to me, March of 2020, yeah, I mean, it's an unfortunate environment. Very quickly, where did we see returns diminish? But those that are in the situation where we know we're going to be doing Roth conversions in that calendar year because their taxable income's low, we hit that hard, really, really hard. It's all right. We really should be looking at Roth conversions now while assets are down. And let it, whatever recovery happens, whenever it happens, be tax-free as opposed to in the Roths. Um, and so some of it's, you know, being timely as you're producing this content. You know, right now I'm looking at one where I want to talk about the different tax proposals that are coming out. But yeah, as you know, they change every single day. So, you know, it's, it's being timely with the content, but also being very, very, very specific. So the, the biggest challenge with all of it is how to produce this stuff. And, and how to create those the slide decks when 
you're trying to be very timely in, in, in that environment. And so again, I'll never forget that the first webinar I did was, can I still afford to retire? 371 attendees. <laughs> and you can imagine March 24th of 2020, <laughs> you know, call, call me an opportunist. But again, it was a lot of people were, were asking that fundamental question, can I still afford to retire? And having to build that slide deck, you know, Sunday night at 11 o'clock <laughs> coming in and, you know, it takes you five hours to build it. But a lot of what I do is, is I take different pieces, things that I see, different resources. You know, honestly, some of the stuff that you, you send us um, on the, the weekly list you do, I love some of the links and, and I see some of that stuff and then I turn around and find ways of applying it. But gener- I generate all my own content past you know stuff that I source. And as you're doing these webinars, like is the, so how often are you doing the webinars and is this all like live delivery, you in front of the camera doing your thing? So great question. We do them every week now. The live events, I would only do once a month. I might do a lunch and a dinner. But now that they're virtual, I do them every week. And interestingly enough, as we've grown, what I found was only having me do them was creating an environment where prospects only wanted to talk to me. And, and I've got several very gifted and very skilled advisors. The last thing I want is a sole dependency on me because obviously that creates natural capacity constraints. So I very quickly pivoted to have my entire advisory core they they all do webinars now and 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 recently we still have been doing them weekly we haven't been putting them up on the website simply because we've been going after additional initiatives and until i get some material mass on those initiatives i'm I'm not throwing them on the website yet but like for example we're going after i won't hide it we're going after conoco phillips we're going after chevron we're going after bp going after oracle sap lockheed we're doing all targeted initiatives into these companies where it's really relevant content. You can see a lot of the stuff we've done for Exxon. It's on our website because naturally that's you know, just low-hanging fruit at the moment. But it's been one of these things where it, it's provided that catalyst for those advisors to be perceived as the subject matter expert. It used to just be me, though, and that was that was pretty pretty brutal. And and is it just always like a set time live webinar thing? Like, you know, every every Tuesday at two is someone from Bogart Wealth doing a webinar on something? Every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern, 1130 Central, we do the live event. Now, they are all recorded. So there's been some of these events, by the way, where I have 35 attendees on the webinar itself, the live event. And then when I watch the statistics, you know, seven days later, they've had 5,000 views. (laughs) It's like, okay, (laughs) people obviously aren't always wanting to watch live. They can watch it in the evenings. So how do you put it out that you get... You can get like a hundred x the follow on after the live. Event. Well, so now it's known. They're all recorded, and and again, they're on the website. So once I get really, really, really into that material mass, we just throw them up on the website, and it's still recorded with the details and the call to action at the end. And the if you enjoyed this webinar, please reach out for your complimentary plan. No cost, no obligation. Which, by the way, I do that at the front, I do it in the middle, and do it at the end. So it's that perpetual reminder of, hey, you really should come in for a plan. And and, and what I will also note, and in, in call it marketing sales strategy, but I also tell people, get multiple plans. Talk to multiple advisors. you got to find the right fit. And that's exactly how I present it. But it naturally kind of softens, if you will, the, the sales side of it. So now take us back to just the overall numbers and the metrics of the firm at this point, like AUM and, and, and client count and, and staff count. You know, now that we've talked about kind of the, the, the content machine that you've made, 
and, and we talked a little bit earlier about the growth that you've had, but help, help fill in up the picture for us now of just the, the state of the firm as it looks today. Yeah, I mean, and it's been changing so dramatically over the last, just call it 15 months. Pandemic, we, we were down to call it uh, 700 million in AUM. And, 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 I'm, and I'm giving you a gross number, but here we are today, uh, broaching one nine, two weeks after July 1st, I'm going to break two bill. A lot of it's just been kind of the perpetuation of this. But then I have a really, really cool dashboard in Salesforce that my guys have built for me where I can track all of our pipelines. So like, for example, I see my next 18 month pipeline is 1.3 billion in AUM. And of that, I break it down what's existing clients. It's 489 million. The rest of it is basically prospects that we need to go win. $845 million of prospects. And then I look at you know the conversion off of those, so prospect conversions versus assets. You can see the funnel of, of how many households we've closed. So for example, uh, third quarter of 2020, we had 42 new households. Fourth quarter of 2020, we had 64 new households. First quarter of 2021 was 70 households. Second quarter was 54 households so far, and and obviously I can see projections for for the next couple of quarters, you know. And then I, I track prospects, so I look at how many new prospect databases do we have that have continuously been coming in through the firm. Now I define a prospect as someone who's come in for planning, not just somebody who's asked to get on my marketing data. But you know, when I look at this volume, it's it's mind-boggling. Where you know, like for example, second quarter of 2020. We did 56 new prospect plans. And in the third quarter of 2020, we did 279 new prospect plans. <laughs> like, yeah, mind boggling numbers. And yeah, I, I got to say, it's, it's, I've, my staff has been incredible. And the timing of this is pretty cool because it's on our five year anniversary. But I look at the volume we've had, the amount of plans we've done. And that it's, was, it's, and that was just the, the ramp up because you had all this specific content around things like you know how to plan for your Exxon Mobil lump sum given current discount rates, and then Exxon Mobil does a giant layoff, and a whole bunch of people are suddenly going on the internet and trying to figure out what to do with their lump sum because they just got laid off and they're getting all the paperwork from Exxon, and lo and behold, you get this massive influx of prospects. Bingo. Yeah. And and so like I do genuinely believe that every sector has its down cycle and they don't correspond with each other at, at, at the exact same time. And so, you know, as we're talking about the future of my company, what we've been really pushing on is I want to have exposure in every sector. And so it's kind of like, all right, let's be ready for when these types of environments happen. And naturally having the client facing capacity to be able to accommodate and sustain as these types of environments continue to occur. Obviously, pandemic's unprecedented. No one knew this was going to happen. It's an interesting way to frame it, though, that just if your business is that tied to layoff events and 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 mass transitions, and you've really got content that's hyper-targeted that, that makes people show up in the pipeline and, and check you out, that the more diversified your pipelines are across different industries and sectors, the better positioned you are that you know, as different sectors do well and poorly at different stages in the economic growth cycle, you've... You've got exposure to whichever sector is most likely to be laying people off at any particular time through the market cycle. Exactly. You know, and, and it's it's really fascinating too recently because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'd say pretty young guy, I'm 35 still. The 
inorganic opportunities have been incredible this year because of, of potential tax policy changes. And, and I think being younger, it makes you a, a pretty decent acquisition uh, opportunity, but or acquiring opportunity, but it's like, why, why would I even think about inorganic stuff right now with how strong our, our organic is? You know, these are, these are the, the constant battles I have internally. <laughs> and so how many households does this add up to in total now for the firm? 902. 902. And so, and then how, how big is the team? So we have uh, 28 now. It's uh, funny, my every day. I feel like every day I come to the office, my CEO says we've hired somebody. But you know, it's 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 an interesting environment because staffing is probably, in my mind, the biggest struggle we have. And and I should probably add that I've got ten open job require, uh, requests right now. So for anybody looking, <laughs> we'd love to talk. Um, <laughs> so if you if you want a firm that's got the new client flow figured out, they just need advisors who will actually service the clients coming in. This is episode 243. So go to kitsis.com slash 243 and we will have links up to Bogart Wealth if you are looking for job opportunities. It, to me, just it really is the interesting distinction that's emerging in the in the industry that you know we we historically just very few firms were were very good at sustaining any kind of organic growth. And so the only people you hired were people who could grow their own salaries, right? Like just we lived in the eat what you kill world. But when you actually figure out an organic growth strategy that works and that you can sustain, that you can scale, all of a sudden the hiring dynamics turn around. And, and you know, I mean, I'm just imagining like for your firm and your flow, like the worst possible thing you could do would be hire an advisor with an existing book of business be- because they can't take the leads you're bringing in because they're already full with the book of business. Like every other advisory firm, almost every other advisory firm seems like always wants to hire people who bring books of business because basically they, they bring their own revenue to pay for themselves. But when you actually have an organic growth engine, it's like, no, I really want people who are not coming gummed up with clients because I need to be able to give you a lot of clients because we're bringing them in. You're you're hitting the nail on the head for me right now because we <laughs> I, I even tell folks in the final interview when I come in, advisor hires when I when they come in, I said, I want to be crystal clear. I don't want a single one of the clients you've talked to at the other firm. First off, I don't want the litigation, but second off, I need your capacity. <laughs> which which I guess gets really, really hard from the hiring and for the firm that right uh, you know, in general, if you're trying to hire experienced advisors, it is more likely they have clients because they've just been doing it for some period of time and presumably have established client relationships. So the the dynamic of finding advisors who are skilled and experienced, but quote unquote, don't have the baggage of actually having existing clients is sort of a unique hire unto itself in the current world. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. If a client follows, a client follows, right? Uh, but, you know, I, my point oh, yeah, here is- yeah, but just, Bring on someone who already has a hundred clients. Well, it, really it does you. if they have the right skill set where they can delegate, right? Like I, I think of there's one guy that I'm I'm in conversations with that'll be leaving a firm, and you know he's got probably about a hundred households with him, and he's got the skill set, he's got the gift. You can tell he's a very successful advisor, but he doesn't have the business development acumen, if you will. And I look at his book that would migrate and would immediately build a team around him to help support those customers and facilitate the ability for him to continue to go after some of the other BD initiatives. Because you know, he asked, naturally asked me, why go to you versus go to you know, one of these other firms that will write him a big fat check? And I'm like, well, did, will those, big, those other firms give you the engine to grow like I will? And the answer is no, of course, we know that. And so then 
so now take me back, I don't know, like a year and a half, two years ago before the pandemic. Cause I, I just want to keep the, the growth in context and the dynamics context. Like where, where were you, you know, a year and a half to two years ago when you were in like second half of 2019? To, well, you know what, since you asked that question, I'll give you exact numbers and, and just pull them up. But it, it's, let's see, 2019, I had... I just love that you've got it in spreadsheets. It sounds glorious. <laughs> so 2019, I actually finished the year at seven, excuse me, at 947. 2018, I was at 748. 2017, I was at 708. 2016, I was at 526. So 2019 was effectively a flat year for us. We had some growth, right? But but it wasn't what I would say was a, I'm, I'm sorry, I said 2019. 2020 was effectively a flat year for us because of pandemic, you know, the roller coaster down then back up. You know, we finished the year and uh, in, at the end of 2020, we were just over a billion in AUM. So, you know, so nominally because of market fluctuations and ebbs and flows, our net new assets in that year was 166 million in 2020. Now, 2021 is the scary one. You know, it's almost 800 million in the first six months of this year. <laughs> and and so, even relative to last year, like what what changed from last year to this year? Because it sounds like you you were having prospect flow last year in some pretty big numbers, particularly Q3. Like the market did finish up overall and fairly materially, which gives gives AUM firms a lift. So it sounds like there really was a distinction of some challenges last year versus this year. Was that a like you had the flow, but it was hard to bring them all on board? Was it like you were mind, you know, when you do when you meet a prospect, it doesn't mean that immediately they're retiring in the next month and they're handing you three million dollars, right? It's typically again, it goes back to this pipeline component where you're investing in the longevity of the relationship. And, and a lot of times, you kind of going back to our onboarding when I asked for a win, you know, I, I, I open up starter or trial accounts. And, and even if it's just a $7,000 backdoor Roth, you know, just to get something so that the relationship starts and they can see what our statements look like, how we communicate with clients and gives us a, a more intent reason to engage and talk about, you know, ways that we can enhance value for them. Because once somebody becomes a client, we're at like 97% we get all of the money at retirement. I mean, it's almost every single time we get the rest of the money. Now, some of our clients, all of their money is in their 401ks and their retirement benefits. They have no ability to, to do outside accounts and we're just staying engaged. You know, Truthfully, a lot of what happened this year in 2021 was because I pushed a lot of it out. You know, And as I mentioned, we saw discount rates going down and because of it, and it was in the client's best interest, I pushed it into um, first quarter of 2021. Okay. So- so you know, big big influx of prospect inquiries in Q two Q three of last year, just as pandemic did what pandemic did and layoffs emerge meant. Okay, so tons of people showed up in the prospecting pipeline, but then they have to go to a webinar and another and a third, and then do an initial meeting, and then go through the three planning pro- three meeting process for TFPs, and then eventually decide they want to come on board, and then sign the paperwork, and then begin doing transfers, and so just. All of that playing out means explosive growth this year. It sounds like off of a lot of the activity you were getting last year from organic in lead flow, just it took a while to show up. It wasn't showing up that much in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, as you know, there's a lagging effect that happens with materialization materialization of assets and revenue. 
you know, so, and that's a lot of it. And, and so then what does this look like from the, the staffing side? So I understand all the growth of just like the clients and the organic flow and, and the, and the assets, but I'm presuming if, if, you know, if assets are, you know, basically double where they were in 2019 and, and particularly just double, double where they were almost six months ago, that you're in the midst of like lots of hiring right now. Oh yeah. 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 It's um, so when this started breaking last year, I went to my COO. I was like, all right, we need more staff immediately. And it, then it turned into an exercise of, you know, strategic planning of who, who are we hiring? When are we hiring them? Yeah. So we had going into the pandemic, we had 12 people and now we're up to, what did I say? 27, 28, I think. So as she hired somebody else uh, yesterday, so or somebody accepted an offer yesterday. So we keep growing. So how does that work? Just, I mean, that's, you're basically hiring a new team member every single month on a continuing basis. And, and it, usually doesn't smooth out that evenly but on average you're 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 hiring almost one every every month and and yeah and and you know as i've done the strategic planning we've got the need right now in my mind for 10 additional client facing hires and six additional support hires so you know i i actually would project that by the end yeah so i finished out 2019 excuse me 2020 with 19 staff members on board and now i'm going to probably be at 40 by the end of this year yeah, true double. You know, so the first hires we had were planning. It was it was so imperative given the volume, saw that happening, getting them ramped up. You know, going into it, I had two and a half people in planning. And then next thing you know, it was reshifting internal resources to be able to get more band, bandwidth there. You know, because this this movement was like a tsunami where it went from uh, planning to to then operations to then portfolio management. And obviously advisors were just busy the whole way. You know, so it, it was initially planning, then it was more ops, then it was more portfolio management, you know, and, and some of the hires along the way, like I hired a, a head of HR and staffing, bless her heart. You know, she's, she's basically become an internal recruiter and you know, she's been very patient with me, but of course, you know, key need right now is more, more staff, more capacity. Interesting. So you have a full-time HR person at, at 28 team members, just because the sheer number that you need to hire means you need someone continuously on this. A hundred percent. So, you know, I noticed the first bottleneck was with my, my COO originally. I mean, again, we're 12 people. She was doing all the staffing with me. And what I noticed the first bottleneck was her and, and capacity for her. So then next thing, you know, I'm like, look, I need to get you help. And that's when we brought on the HR staffing person. Paint a picture for us of just what the organizational chart looks like. Cause just you're, you're, you're talking about having a COO, which the growing number of advisory firms are starting to hire at, at at a billion plus of AUM, although it sounds like you've had someone in the role earlier. You've got you know dedicated team in HR. What does the organizational chart look like at Bogart Wealth? Yeah, and, and I should probably give a plug to my COO because I'm sure she's going to listen to this when this goes live, but I would be lost without her. <laughs> um, having someone in that role is so imperative to keeping the ongoing operations running. But the org chart itself is obviously, uh, I'm serving as CEO and president. She reports directly to me. And then we now have a advisory department. We have a planning department. We have an operations department. We have a portfolio management department. I have my HR department and we have a business development department. What's the, 
What's the difference between, I think you said there's an advisory department and a planning department. So we do everything departmentally. So like, for example, all of our plans, and and this goes back to kind of consistency of client experience and uniformity, but all of the plans get actually built by the advisory department. So when a prospect comes in, the data input is all the same. Everybody's you know, form everybody's data goes into the same form, which then gets submitted to planning. Planning builds the plan. The advisor then reviews it. And obviously, if there's anything that needs to change, they'll go back to planning and planning will make the adjustment. I don't have my advisors building their own plans. So 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 planning is the plan building department and advisory is the client facing deliver the advice department. Precisely. And why the why the split? To be perfectly honest, it came back to consistency of client experience, and then I'd also say compliance associated with it. At one point, we had advisors who were building their own plans, and the next thing you know, the plan version that one advisor would be very, very different than another advisor. And because what we've done within the firm is very system and process driven, it prohibited some of the redundancy effects. So like, for example, if I needed to step in on one of my other advisors meetings, then it made it very challenging for me to step in in this example and understand all of the nuances of what's going on. But in the context of when I have a consistent output across the board, I can step in or any other advisor in the firm can step in and see very quickly what's going on why it's going on, how it's going on, and then ultimately how to execute and implement. Interesting point. Interesting point that just when the when the planning process is that standardized because the central planning department makes it in a standardized manner, obviously it's an advisor stepping in doesn't necessarily know the individual client details as well and might have to get up to speed on it, but they know like they know exactly what the plan's gonna look like, they know what the output's gonna look like. They know how to read through and find the key areas of the plan because it's their plan because it's the same plan they've been delivering to their clients in in their area. So you get you get more cross functionality of the advisory department, the client facing folks, by having the planning department make every plan in a consistent way. So so how do you just manage the business itself and the sheer volume of of growth? Right, just not not a lot of advisory firms have had the kind of growth cycle you have. You just adding dozens and dozens of clients every quarter, adding team members like basically every month on an ongoing basis, not the world for a lot of advisors as they're coming in. So like just how do you manage the business itself to handle all of this? So what I would say it, it's imperative to have systems and processes but you know, I'm a big believer in EOS, uh, Entrepreneurial Operating System, and having an implementer to help with that. There is zero way I would be able to do what we have done without my leadership team. And and you know, one thing that you know I'm, I'm still having to get good at is is delegating where people are making decisions that don't involve me. It's been a struggle. That's on me <laughs> more than more than my team. But you know, it's it's interesting because the culture has changed in the last 15 months, and and you know, some good, some bad, right? It's it, you go from having like a very family oriented feel to having now you've got different different leadership levels, you know, managers. You know, and I should note we've got three offices in in three different geographies. One is in Houston, one's in the Woodlands, Texas, and one's in McLean, Virginia. And, and we're looking at opening up two others in different geographies, uh, different conversations we're having. You know, but it's 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 very fascinating to see. You know, how, like, for example, call them the legacy employees, employees that have been through, you know, the, the growth and, and what we've gone through have have adapted to that environment. And for me, 
culture is everything employees and, and having them incorporated in, in everything that we're doing and feeling included in what we're doing is it's it's been imperative you know but now we're, we're at a place where you know that some of that's shifting and, and it's where i push back or I, I lean on my leadership team extremely hard to be able to accommodate some of that and and how did you come to the eos world in particular you know, I got to give credit to John Fury um, for that. You know, I've been part of uh, entrepreneur organization EO and, and YPO and, and, and all of those for some time. But the real kick in the butt, if you will, was from John Fury at Advisor Growth Strategies, who um, I had been speaking to him and engaged him for some of our strategic planning work. And, and I would highly recommend him, by the way. But, you know, he flat out said, you need you need to get this implemented immediately. So we then went and hired a, a, an implementation coach. You know, part of me, I, I, I like to read. I, I like to read as much as I can outside of the business. But if anyone hasn't read the book Traction, I love Traction. I think it's it's a great way to kind of get yourself acclimated to what EOS is and why it's so imperative to continue to grow and scale. Yeah, it was it was kind of that kick in the butt, and, and you know, it's it's almost like you know you you recognize you need to make some structural changes, but at the same time too, necessarily knowing to specifically what to implement and execute, yeah, that's always the hardest part. And and so, what was the distinction for you between like getting into something like EOS versus that you said you were part of YPO or EO or like some of the other you know networking growth organizations in the past? So, so for me, EOS is it, it's more directly going into exactly what the business needs to be able to operate and execute. You know, it's it's all well and good to have great ideas, but at the end of the day, what really causes growth is execution, uh, implementation of those great ideas. I needed something for me to have a platform to be able to talk to the different people in my firm and and really get some help. You know, it's it's like, look, I'm drowning because of capacity constraints and all this growth, you know, but at the same time too, you know, for typical entrepreneur, it's it's just going to be faster if I do it myself, right? Well, the, you know, that's not any way to grow. So I needed to have, you know, something in place where I had more people who were invested in the success of the firm, but also really wanted to understand how they can help me. And so EOS really gave me that platform where I can have a leadership team. I could talk about all of the different issues that are going on or just even things that are bothering me and giving them the power and ownership to be able to go and run with it. You know, here's the problem. Let's go fix it. I mean, interestingly enough, you know, recently it's, it's kind of coming back to, all right, take these other initiatives and push them out a quarter because this is the only one that matters right now. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, and then it becomes an all hands on deck. Everybody knows what, what is the core thing that they need to be working towards. Even if it's a different department that they can't drive it, they can at least support the departments that need the help. So what surprised you the most in building your own advisory business and scaling it up? Jeez, you didn't prepare me for that question. Surprised me the most. Yeah, I, I'd honestly say, I, I don't think I, and it, I would ever have imagined it being this difficult to get staff, to get more staff and scale up at this growth. But it's been a series of kind of calm growing pains. These are you know, really the 1% of the 1% problems, but it's, it's managing all of the things outside of the client relationship, staffing, office space, legal, compliance, client services, you know, all of those have 
good and bad to them, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, you have an office space lease where, you know, you're at capacity, you, you know, it's, let's just say it's a seven year lease and you're at capacity in the first 12 months of it. I mean, good problem, of course, but now of course it leads to other, you know, dynamics that have to get, you know, at play. You know, my, my CEO and I were talking, she's like, you know, in the five years we've been in business, you've had eight different offices. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I'm going to kill you. Um, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a funny thing to me that, you know, just that, that world of stuff that no one ever talks about when you're dealing with the, with the fast growth business, like office space is a, is a huge one. I mean, just a lot of advisory firms grow at, you know, 10 to 15% a year is usually a good air quotes, like a good growth rate for an advisory firm, which means just if you pull out your, you know, financial calculator rule of 72, like you're going to double in five to seven years. And, you know, when you double in five to seven years, that kind of works okay. You buy a, you, you know, you take down some office space. It's got a little room to grow. You grow. It gets a little squeezy at the end, but then you come to the end of your five year lease and and like you you expand or or go get some new new space or relocate or maybe you've got someone where you need a little more space, but you can take down an office next door or the same floor or one floor up and down. And like you can you can flex into it when you're growing at a at a pace like yours. You know, hey, we doubled we doubled the headcount in twelve months. It's not even a, hey, like if we all kind of squeeze a little and someone has to work out of one of the like office supply closets for a few months until we get to the end of our lease, but we'll make it through. Like that doesn't work. You just obliterate your space needs in a year or two into a five-year lease and either have to bust the lease or or and just treat it as a cost of doing business or have a lot of other challenges around splitting up your office space because, you know, fast growth companies are just not or I should just say like traditional office leasing is not built for fast growth companies. Well, and, and, you know, and of course in this environment, you're forced to kind of say, well, why not just go virtual and, and, you know, employees are, are accustomed to, to virtual and, and I'll be honest. And, and again, everybody's different, but for me, virtual in this growth mode did not work. You know, the, the, we were actually only out of the office for six weeks and I, I feel, actually feel really, really blessed because when we came back into the office, my new office space was ready. And so initially I could spread everybody out. They had window offices and I didn't have to worry about people sitting on top of each other. Now, fast forward, you know, we're, we're 12 months into the lease and it's like, all right, we're back on top of each other. And what do we do next? Um, you know, it's, again, good problems, but still problems nonetheless. So what was the low point for you on just the career journey over the past 10, 15 years that you've been doing this? I would say, so, and I probably should take a step back and talk a little bit about the, the, the career path, but I started out of college, went to a small broker dealer. They got acquired in 2009 by RBC Wealth Management. In 2014, we made the decision to, to leave RBC and go to Morgan Stanley, and then very, very quickly left Morgan Stanley to go independent. And, and I would say that the low point for me really was that second transition. Not because going independent wasn't what I was excited about, but it ultimately was that point in time where despite all of the reasons for going to Morgan Stanley and and the, the logistical hassle of making a transition to go there, really starting to question you know some of your decisions. Um, why did I do this? Was it really the best move? You know, because that second move to go independent you know, was was extremely expensive. We lost uh, probably almost thirty percent of the business uh, on the second move to go independent, and so 
then all of a sudden it's like, all right, based on all the financial modeling that we had done to build out the RIA, you know, does this is the right move? And, and, you know, the thing is, is everybody, again, you see the, the highlights and you, you see the awards, but you know, the, it's the demons at night that you, when you start questioning yourself and you start questioning, did I make the right decision? And, you know, I'll never forget the day that I, I, we had made the final decision to go independent and, and we're, we're getting ready to go moving it was the day I found out that I was pregnant with my first child. And, you know, that's the, uh, the pucker up moment of, all right, I'm going to be, I, I have to make this successful because I'm going to have a kid. It's not just me anymore. And, you know, in some ways I, I would say my daughter has become the ultimate motivation for me. Um, I now have two children, but you know, that was the, the kind of like, all right, I really need to make this work because it's, you know, someone else is now really dependent upon me. But, I, you know, going back to your question of, you know, what was the, 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 the darkest days or the, the most challenging was, was probably the decision to make that second move because, you know, naturally transition from, from BD to broker dealer to broker dealer to then going independent, you know, we were only at Morgan Stanley for let's just call it 19 months. And, you know, naturally when you make that type of change, not only do you lose business on the, on the second transition, because clients are going to naturally question why two moves in two years. And I would argue that it was call it the unthinkable, but at the same time too, you know, there was legal that followed with it. There was, you know, obviously new office space, cash outflows everywhere, you know, and, 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 you know, but a lot of people don't necessarily see the behind the scenes stuff, but, you know, I went all in on Bogart Wealth, Uh, you know, selling houses, selling, selling my house, selling my, you know, cars and pretty much everything, you know, clearing out retirement accounts to to make this thing work because we were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the, the, the firm launched. So help us understand, just because I'm I'm sure other people have made these leaps or struggled with these leaps as well. Like what what was it that pulled you to Morgan Stanley, and then what was it that ultimately made you say like, wait, this just isn't the right place for me. I I think I got to go somewhere else. Given as you've noted, like the risks and costs involved, which were quite significant. So yeah, they were. I mean, significant is probably an understatement. Originally, we went to Morgan Stanley with a lot of things that were promised to us, and 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 interchange the firm name. Right, it, it's all of these guys. You got to recognize, you know. When, when a recruiter is looking for you, they're trying to sell you something. It's a lot of promises were made both to support the existing business as well as the growth. I mean, even leading up to the, the decision to move, I mean, if I go back and look at my AUM from when I was at RBC, I mean, it went from 120 million up to 600 million in a very, very short period of time, you know, call it six years. But the decision was, was really done for couple contexts. Um, first was supporting existing business and then the growth. Um, my dad was very much involved um, at the point in time, and we were going to use some of the Morgan Stanley uh, transition to help with his retirement. But then what happened was not more than a week. Oh, and then I should also add, we were very much an ExxonMobil shop at that point in time. And Morgan Stanley had the stock plan with ExxonMobil. And that was probably one of the biggest drivers, to be perfectly honest. Very quickly, we were there for maybe a week and we got called into managerial office saying, you know, you're not allowed to solicit existing clients of the firm anymore and i'm like wait a minute what <laughs> oh no so like all of a sudden it went from morgan has the exxon mobile retirement plan so maybe you can get some cross-selling introductions into oh wait since morgan has the exxon mobile retirement plan all of them are off limits to you because they're already clients of the firm 
And so, you, you know, that was the, call it the, the real eye opener as to what had really happened. Next thing you know, it, it put us into a place where we either had to reinvent what we were doing or just be content with what we had and not grow or do the unthinkable. And, you know, my dad was still very active at the time. He used to like to call it the sort of Damocles. Every day you kind of felt like you're going to come in and get fired because, you know, anything that you were doing could have potentially put you on the radar. It, like I said, it, it forced the unthinkable. And so how do you get a, if I'm remembering my timeline correctly, how do you get a then pregnant spouse on board with like, hey, I got a great idea, going to blow up my retention payment go out and start a new thing. Oh, and this house that like you were settling into for the, for the family that we're about to have, like we're going to be selling this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might let my wife actually answer that question. Um, but you know, she, she has been supportive of me. And I think, you know, what I would say is, is very few women can get behind the ambition of an entrepreneur and some of the decisions that have to get made. I mean, there's a lot, I mean, you know this, but there's a lot of really difficult decisions that have to get made in order to be successful and the sacrifices along the way. I mean, let's, let's also note, I, I, I am a Texas resident. My wife lives in Virginia with my kids. So there in itself is a huge sacrifice that has to happen that, you know, she, she is the COO of the household. She runs the family and she's very good at keeping me as balanced as possible, given that I am very much uh, in growth mode and continue to be in growth mode. But I, I would say, you know, to answer your question, it's a lot of trust. There's absolutely a lot of trust. And, and I, have to give her every bit of credit for putting her faith in me, knowing that despite the fact that I'm literally blowing up everything that we had at that point in time, <laughs> I don't think she truly grasped how, how much that really was <laughs> when, when, when I said I was going to go independent. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I would argue she's, she's benefited from the, the, what's happened since then, though. Anything that you wish you'd done differently? Like, just what, what do you know now you wish you could go back and? and tell you from five years ago as you're making the transition to independence or thinking about the, the transition? Yeah, I, I would have said go virtual faster. You know, get the, get, the, get the educational content digital quicker. I didn't appreciate the value that was. And I, and I would also say integration attacks. Those are the two things I look at this last 15 months, what we've done so well and what's really logarithmically caused us to grow. I would attribute the two of them together. Also, and I probably shouldn't make a lot of Ed mention it yet, but it, you know, in 2020 is when I gave up my licenses. You know, when we went independent initially, my plan was meaning the BD license is the 766. Yeah, my my uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, my seven and my 66. Originally, that was my plan, give them up, and then you know, all of a sudden, you know, it goes back to the the you know the salespeople when you're going independent. It's like, oh, it's going to be easy. We'll we'll just link it in. Yeah, it's not that easy. So next thing you know, you know, fast forward three months of in, being in, into being independent, I'm going back and getting my licenses with an RAA friendly PD. You know, it wasn't originally what my plan was. I wanted to obviously launch Bogart Wealth and be a true fiduciary, but recognizing that effectively, we were orphaning a bunch of these assets. And that really upset clients. So next thing you know, we got the, the licensing and then got it all integrated and, and the infrastructure was correct. But and then, you know, fast forward to 2020, you know, where we, we created the solution where we could still be able to effectively service the assets without having to orphan them. And, and it made the decision crystal clear to drop the licenses to be able to 
not have any level of inherent conflict of interest. See, I never viewed carrying my licenses when I went independent as as a conflict, but of course, you know, from the optics perspective, it always could be, right? I would say, you know, going back to that, you know, the decision to create a firm, there are a lot of decisions that go outside of just okay, I'm going to transition my clients and I'm going to have my own office. You know, it becomes staffing, payroll, office space, compliance, legal, you know, just all of these different things that, you know, what technology I'm going to use, what, you know, it's just stuff. Being able to to have that, those processes in place is extremely important. But going back to the question of what would I do differently? I would go virtual with my educational content much, much quicker. I would integrate tax much, much quicker. And out of curiosity, like what what was the BD you ended up using that at least was friendly when you were an RIA? And then what was the solution for being able to serve assets without orphaning them and dropping the licenses? So PKS is the BD I was I was affiliated with when I was hybrid, and uh, the asset. So B, uh, PKS has a platform where and. and don't quote me on it, of course, you know, it's a recorded podcast, but where you can have assets custody there with a uh, limited power of attorney relationship to be able to still help service those assets. Okay. So, so you, that was the transition in 2020 was like the, the clients are, the clients brokerage assets stay at PKS. You get an LPOA that lets you be able to service them and interact with them. But I'm presuming that means you are, you are not necessarily getting trails. You can't get paid on it. But just you at least at least they're not stranded or transitioned to some other broker who's then going to call on them and potentially try to try to poach your clients like PKS gets the trails for taking the legal responsibility, but you at least can stay connected to the clients and the accounts uh, so that you're not completely stranded. Yeah, bingo. Exactly. And and, you know, I got to say they, they've been a good partner. BD stuff, it's, yeah, it's, it's stuff, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I personally didn't love having a FINRA audit simultaneously with an SEC audit. <laughs> that was, that was not fun. But, you know, when I look at it, the, the, the trails were like 1% of my revenue. I mean, it, it, it just did not justify the cost associated with it other than being able to give the client the experience. And so, you know, that's where, you know, when we started digging into it, and as soon as I talked to PKS about this this solution, I'm like perfect, do it. <laughs> How fast can we get this done? Basically, just to get <laughs> to get Finra audits and the layer of Finra out of your life because the trail revenue just wasn't worth the Finra hassle at that point. No, honestly, it, to be honest, I don't mind. The audits aren't fun, it, you know. In compliance, it, it's part of what we do. But to be honest, it, it really came back to being able to to market myself as a true fiduciary. That I mean, people do not give it enough value, in my opinion, because clients are becoming a lot more educated on what a fiduciary is, and ultimately what the difference between a hybrid and a true fiduciary are. And at first, you know, again, I, even myself, I, I'm like, clients, do clients really know the difference? They know. And, and you know, am I going to correlate all of the growth that we've had with not having my licenses? Absolutely not. But at the end of the day, can I say that it was another, you know, call it cap, uh, feather in my cap? Absolutely. You know, and because and if you think you're going to go independent to get away from compliance or, or just be registered with the SEC and get away from compliance, that's that's you're you're so much under a misconception there. You know, compliance doesn't go away because you're an RAA. Do you have a little bit more latitude on on making the call and you owning the responsibility? Absolutely, but you're still beholden to compliance. So, what advice would you give to younger, newer advisors getting started today? I do a lot of this, to be honest, um, and and. Right now, one of the things that I see is is 
younger advisors getting in the industry or a couple years in, this is one of the best opportunities ever. You know, I think 2008 effectively cleared out a majority of kind of the mid-tier, mid-age range advisor because of just lack of training programs and anybody who wasn't performing got fired. So it's it's really the advice that I would give is is first and foremost, have confidence, have competence. Between confidence and competence, those are the most important things that, that any advisor could have. I would push very hard on having a CFP. You know, being a certified financial planner is extremely important. It gives you the tools you need to be able to adequately service all of the needs that a, that a client household has. And then I would also place an emphasis on having goals. Gosh, if, if, if and again, you asked the question about, you know, younger me, being more diligent on having goals that push me and, and specifically putting them on paper, being able to see them day in and day out. You know, I've got my goals on an app on my phone. It sends me a reminder throughout the day. Now, admittedly, sometimes I just, you know, kind of silence it, but it's that perpetual reminder of what you're working towards. And and then something that I'm working on my, right now myself personally is is celebrating the successes that you have and remembering the people that got you there. You know, it's, it's, you know, I think about my COO, I think about my wife, I think about the people who have been through the roller coaster because you're guaranteed to have dark days. To me, you know, you think about the amount of times you question what you're doing, if you're going to quit, you know, and, and, and obviously when you're having those darkest days, you have the, 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 that that element of doubt continues to perpetuate, you know. But finding that light at the end of the tunnel is is so important, and and then ultimately being able to strive and know what you need to execute upon to be able to get there. And I would also say, get coaching. I, I am a very big believer in, in having a coach. I, I actually have three coaches, but it, it's different things, of course. But you know, having someone to be able to just even be a soundboard, but also push you and hold you accountable because accountability is, is, is the, the recipe in my mind to success because it's all well and good to say, you know, I want to get to a billion in assets, you know, great. But if you're not doing the steps to be able to do it and, and, and ultimately prioritizing going on vacation over, you know, doing some business development initiatives, then you're not going to get there. It's just, I hate to say it, you know, and, and I have a, a colleague of mine who, you know, I talked to him six years ago that I, I said, hey, come on board. I'd love to have you on the team. You know, you do extremely well. And he, he flat out just said, no, I'd rather have a lifestyle practice. And that's his priority. Fine. If that's what your goal is, then have that be your goal. But know that that should be one of your goals. And what do you need to be doing to execute it so you can have more of that quote unquote lifestyle, which means you need more help. You need more people to be able to support you while you go and travel and have fun. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the things I've, I've long observed, just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you know, you're on this great rapid growth trajectory for success of the business with some just incredible organic growth numbers. But I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? You know, you, you, it, it's a, that's a relative question, of course, as you said. Success now to me is to be in a place to be able to enhance the industry, educate the consumer, and ultimately find fulfillment in what I do. It took me a while to get there. It really, really did, uh, at least the, the latter part with, with fulfillment. Um, and, and that's where now it's, it's having that element of gratitude on a day in and day out basis of who's been there with me with this entire journey, what's gotten me there. And, and ultimately, because, you know, it's, it's not really about the monetary or material things anymore. It's being able to, to have an impact 
And, and that's why, you know, when people keep asking me, why do you need to keep growing? Why does the company need to keep growing? And, and I come back and say, I know the value we provide and I know the impact we have on these people. And they are entrusting us to facilitate all of their needs for the next chapter of their lives. And it's important. And I know that we can continue to get better. So, you know, when I look at growth and success, I look at it as continuing to to empower the industry, empower the advisors, you know, and I think of like the next iteration of what I'm working on right now, it's, I'm calling it Bogart Wealth University, but it's it's really going to be more of, of that practical application for that next generation of advisors. So as they come into the workforce, they have that competence, but also the confidence to be able to deliver and execute on this stuff, because that's where I see the big disconnect still. I love that. Just that focus, that framing of having the, have the confidence, have the competence. Well, you, you know, each, having each of them independent of each other is actually a very dangerous recipe <laughs> um, because you can be very confident, but not have the competence and you're just giving bad advice, but you could also have the competence without the confidence and, and ultimately you're not going to get anywhere. So it's, it's the empowerment of the two in, in cycle is, it's just so beyond important. I love it. I love it. The confidence plus competence together. Well, thank you so much, James, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.